Hey, just a quick warning. This episode features comedians and my 95-year-old Nana, who's also quite the comedian, uh, and they use uh, some what you would call risque language. So just a warning. Thanks. I don't know about you, but for me, things haven't felt very funny lately. The news has become a daily, horrifically numbing onslaught of atrocities, from Orlando to St. Paul, Dallas, Istanbul, Baton Rouge, Baghdad, Nice, Brussels, San Bernardino. It seems the more tragedies we hear about, the less we can even begin to process them. It's been said, though, that comedy is tragedy plus time, so I don't know. Hopefully, things will start to feel funny again at some point soon. Jews, of course, have no lack of tragedy in our past and present, Anthony Gottlieb, writing about the book No Joke by Ruth R. Weiss in the New York Times Book Review, said, quote, One might almost think that the chosen people were chosen for the quality of their jokes. Salcia Landman, a scholar of Yiddish who died in 2002, argued that Jewish humor is more acute, more powerful, and richer in expression than that of any other people. End quote. But why Jews? Is it because we've experienced so much tragedy in our history, or has our outside status made us resort to comedy as a coping mechanism? Have Jews always been funny? Is it innate, or is it woven into the religious experience somehow? On this episode of The Kibbutz, we'll talk Jews and comedy. I've got great interviews with David Wayne of Wet Hot American Summer, Stella and Role Models, Andrea Rosen, also of Stella, The Ten, and the Showtime Show episodes, and the creator of Whose Line Is It Anyway and Mock the Week, Dan Patterson. We also have Kasher vs. Kasher talking about the origins of comedy in Judaism. Plus, my 95-year-old Nana tells some jokes. So, put on your Groucho glasses and watch out for that whoopee cushion as you sit down, relax, and enjoy this episode of The Kibitz. David Wayne might be the hardest working man in showbiz. His comedy oeuvre, not a Yiddish word, includes Wet Hot American Summer, The Ten, Role Models, Wanderlust, The State, Stella, Children's Hospital, Weighty Days, and the soon-to-come National Lampoon's biopic, A Feudile and Stupid Gesture, as well as another eight episodes of Wet Hot American Summer on Netflix. We spoke at his office in Los Angeles. Hi, Dan. Hi. How are you doing? I'm excited to be here to Kibitz for a little bit. Thank you. I appreciate you taking the time. You seem like you're having I a busy day. I only wish I had some kugel or some kreplach. I know. Well, I should have brought you some ruglach. Or some mishmash soup. So, yeah, I want to talk about kind of Jews and comedy and, and uh, you know, how, I mean, we know that Jews control the entertainment business. And banking. And banking. So how has being Jewish helped your uh, career in comedy? Um, basically, I've just been able to get a lot of loans. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I also have my own ATM, nice. uh, because we control banking right? and I can park at the bank when I want to go to the farmer's market. That's really helpful. Yeah. I have very, I, I don't know what I have to say about this topic, but I can speak from the heart. Um, I know that my dad, uh, uh always used to say in order to be in show business, uh, it's helpful to be Jewish unless you happen to go by the name of Johnny Carson. <laughs> he always considered Johnny Carson the lone exception. <laughs> right. Uh, and was he the, was he sort of the, was he the funny one in your family? Like, do you feel like you got, he was definitely funny. Yeah. He was, uh, 
he is a very funny guy yeah. and he was in the radio business and in fact he used to do uh, a radio like an old time radio show sketch kind of thing at his sales meetings with his like an annual gathering for all his employees and they, he would uh, do like a, a sketch he wrote about making fun of everyone in the company and making jokes about them and I would sometimes act in it as a little boy and, wow and then where, where did he air this he he made it. He we went to a recording studio to record it, and I used to hang out and watch. It was so exciting. I mean, it was literally just some voices and some sound effects, but I was yeah. blown away. And then he would bring a cassette to the sales meeting, like, and be in a, probably a you know a dining room with a hundred people or something, and he would play the audio. And that's awesome. It was called the Metroplex Story. His company was called Metroplex. It was like an early podcast in many ways. In many ways, yeah. And in many ways, not not at all. <laughs> and in other ways, not at all. <laughs> And so was like how how Jewy was your upbringing? Uh, relatively Jewy. Yeah. I went to a Jewish camp and I went to uh, Sunday school and Hebrew school and and stuff. You did uh, all that. I went to a little bit of temple and I had a bar mitzvah. And uh -huh. my parents and family were and still are very involved in Jewish philanthropy uh -huh. and uh, a lot of uh, raising money for Jewish welfare fund right. and stuff like that. And were they? Do you feel like they were like? Religious Jews or more cultural Jews? Uh, most more cultural, but I think my father was a little bit. My father was actually raised Orthodox in Brooklyn, and and then sort of has become conservative slash reformed. Uh -huh. He he actually last I checked belongs to both a conservative and a reformed congregation. <laughs> just just covering all Cleveland. the bases, just yeah, in case. Exactly. <laughs> um, and he goes where he where the wind blows. Uh -huh. uh, but you know he's got a a, a more religious spiritual base than maybe my mother did or that I do with it. Yeah. And you, you said you went to Jewish summer camp. That was, was that Camp Minden? Camp Moden. Moden, right. I also went to another Jewish summer camp, Camp Wise in okay. Ohio, but Camp Moden was the big one when right. I was a teenager. Yeah. And that, uh, it's, it's, it's legend that that was the sort of the basis of, of Wet Hot American Summer ish. Yeah. Well, for my, yeah. my half for of your, it. Yeah. Your, and then Michael Showalter went to a different camp, which uh -huh. similar idea though. Similar Jewy kind of But uh, Moden was great. It was probably my favorite Jewish experience of my life because we were, it was, you know the the dividing up the week and having the Shabbat and that that was my favorite thing because it was none of the I, I associated a lot of Jewish stuff growing up with going to Sunday school and Hebrew school and being so bored I, I was going to cry all the time and and authority figures it was just like that movie um, a serious man uh -huh. it was just like it was the opposite of pleasurable yeah all that stuff in many ways but I uh, whatever and then but camp to me was really cool because we'd like run around all week and then you'd, and Friday afternoon you take a shower and you get a little dressed up and we have services and there's no you know a long dinner and you sing songs and you hang out and you're the whole camps together all day Saturday and you do a big activity whatever it was like it had a it was a neat way to delineate time and stuff and I remember talking about that at my first uh, reboot summit oh wow many years ago. Wow. How did, I mean, aside from becoming kind of a, the genesis of the, of the wet hot movie, of my career, of your career, um, do you feel like you got a lot of like your comedic start out of doing those kinds of things or you just always felt attracted to it or? Um, I mean, I certainly felt like there was great comedy in watching all the Jews around where I grew up and my parents, friends being weird. And, you know, I remember, uh, my friend Stuart that I grew up with who is now a screenwriter and um, and Craig who's now a composer um, 
we would just marvel at the folly of my parents' generations, just like the, the, their sense of humor. And I think part, part of my, you know, a huge part of my whole thing in my career is making fun of comedy, you know, and making fun of other people's jokes mm-hmm. and stuff. And so I, I remember very specifically being at the, uh, Oak, uh, the Beachmont country club or something in Cleveland, Ohio. And, um, someone was making a speech at maybe like at an anniversary party and uh, she goes, where's, where's my wife? And then the guy in the audience is like, she left you. (laughs) And to me, that just kind of summed up the sense of humor of like, ha ha. (laughs) Okay. Um, And did you, and did your family encourage or discourage you from doing comedy? They encouraged me by laughing. Right, uh, and I was often the entertainer at the uh, dinner table, um, doing shtick. And, uh-huh. You know, I was I was a ham for yeah. sure. Uh, so I don't think they ever specifically said, "And so you should go into comedy." I didn't even know what that meant. Yeah, um, and I didn't even think about it in any form. I mean, I guess I always thought, "Oh, I want to be on Saturday Night Live," but I didn't actually think of it as a career path until um, I was really in college and doing the state with with the group sketch group, the state. Yeah. And then that just sort of, that just kind of... Well, that became such a thing, even while we were still in college, it became such a serious endeavor that we were so committed to and so excited about that by the time we graduated, it was very clear to us that we were had no intention of stopping it. You yeah. know, it was not a college activity at all to us. It was what we did. It was who we were. Yeah. And of course, it, that turned out to be exactly the case. And yeah. we still work together all the time. For everybody. And we're now we're in our mid-40s. There were a lot of Jews in the state, but then a lot of non-Jews. Were there, was there any kind of schism between the, uh, the Jews? And well, the you know, I would like to say no. But as it turned out, like the Jews did kind of, we, you know, the Jews in the state essentially became Stella. Right. Uh, <laughs> and everybody else. And everyone else became not Stella. So uh, there was that sort of shared something, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but uh, there really, that was really, there was only just the three of us out of the 11. Yeah. That's really uh, interesting. I mean, and do you, I mean, unless I'm forgetting somebody. Yeah. And I mean, you have, uh, like in Wet Hot specifically, you know, the move, there's a lot of jokes about. Jews and it's you know from uh, when Janine Graffalo is calling out the names yeah. and you know I know you're all getting ready for the big talent show tonight but the following campers need to put their trunks out so the early bus to Boston can pick them up at 7:30 a.m. Amanda Klein, Jessica Azaria, Ira Stevenberg, Saul Zimmerstein, uh, David Ben Gurion. And then your character in the in the first day of camp, uh, yeah, I was Netflix series. specifically really happy to get even deeper into that specific aspect of the Jewish summer camp experience, which is the Israeli uh, stud. exchange <laughs> <Yeah>. stud counselor <laughs> that sort of puts a ripple in the dynamic of the whole camp because yeah. he's good looking and he smokes and it's weird and he's a little bit holier than now and just yeah. like, I, I I feel like it's such a classic type and yeah did you know i mean was the, did you know a guy like that oh my was god that, i knew so many guys like that yeah and 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 in fact the when we were just brainstorming in the writer's room we were like there should be an israeli counselor and i kind of like left the room and then other people in the room just sort of wrote this thing up and it was so awesome and yeah it, and I, it really wasn't my uh they wrote the draft the first drafts of it and um i was like that's really funny and then i didn't 
in, intend on playing the part ever, uh, we were going to get somebody that looks more like you. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, in just our own internal reading out the script to see how it sounded, I would just do the accent as right. I remembered it from camp. And uh, pretty much everyone's like, you've just got to do this. You, you know, <laughs> so you. put on a wig. And <laughs> I'm so happy to meet all of you. In Israel, we have a saying, Hayim local de ti. It means, will you dance with me? And that is how I feel about all of you, uh, men, women, counselors, campers. I want you all to dance with me. So. <laughs> it all worked out. And then, of course, um, now people are like, oh, my God, that Netflix show is the, my favorite thing. Da, 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 da. How come you're not in it? <laughs> I'm like, I'm the Israeli guy. They're like, no way. Your <laughs> legs look like that. <laughs> I was, I did, that was actually the first thing I noticed. Thank you. Like, very, uh, very nice gams. Thanks. Um, <laughs> do, and do you ever, fear, I mean, is there any, you know, any kind of like backlash from that or like, you know, Jews, are, are you afraid at all of sort of like the portrayal of Jews like that or it's I sort mean, of self-deprecating? Yeah, not really. I mean, I have to say that the, the tiny bit of feedback we got from the Jewish press on that Netflix show was really positive. There yeah. was like a long sort of op-ed piece about why it was the most accurate uh, portrayal of an Israeli they've seen in something or, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure. paraphrasing, but yeah. like there was been, I mean, the response to the whole thing was very positive. And, yeah. I, and I think, um, you know, it was spoken, uh, all of Wet Hot, all of what I do is basically told from a place of truth and, and absurdity at the same time. But um, I'm not, I just don't think Michael Showalter or I have like a vindictive streak in what we're doing. And so I, hopefully that seems to communicate. So some people don't like it just cause they don't like it cause it's, they think it's stupid or right. which it is. Um, and they just don't get it or they don't want to get it. Or, but, but so that's where we get the hostility for people who are like, this is so dumb or, you know, I don't understand why other people are laughing at it. Yeah. But um, the sort of the targets of our, of our spoof uh, tend to be uh, not ruffled. <laughs> yeah. And do you feel like, is there anybody that you feel particularly influenced by like Jewish or not, you know, humor wise? Well, I mean, Woody Allen was a huge temple yeah. for me growing up. I mean, uh, when I was nine or 10, we got a, one of the first beta maxes and we had a friend who got us like somehow all the Woody Allen movies taped off Showtime or whatever. And, I watched them over and over and over again, along with all the Steve Martin specials. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's sort of, those two guys kind of seeped into my bones. Yeah. For better and worse. <laughs> yeah, I mean, those were, those were the icons of, those were you the know, guys. when we were I mean, growing up. I know, I'm not, yeah, yeah I'm not sure. unique in saying that. Yeah. And you talked about when you were on Marin, um, how you, uh, you know, realized that doing a kind of unplugging at Shabbat was actually really helpful to you. Mm. Is that, is that, uh, have you been able I to keep that I think it was that week. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I think it was that week. Um, no, I mean, it's still, it is, it's, it's an ongoing, I do try to just unplug in general as I can, when I can, I have kids now, uh, who, um, encourage, like, it's good. What I try to do is if I'm with my kids and, uh, therefore there's no emergency involving them that I would need to be called about. I try to leave my phone somewhere else, you yeah. know, or I just put it away or I even leave it in the car and we'll go out and do something. Um, but you know, it's, it, I feel like as we become more and more aware of the need to unplug or to not, to get not too caught up in our screens, we also, 
increasingly become more dependent on them because they get more and more powerful and more and more the way you get in touch with people or things. And it's, it's, it's really, it's this bizarre new reality we're going into. Yeah. Cause you know, you could like you obviously like uh, unplugging five years ago would have been a lot easier, but yeah. now like you, you cannot get by, you can't carry white pages around. <laughs> <laughs> you could. I mean, I do. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Thanks. This has been awesome. I think that's Dan. Yeah. Anytime I can come kibitz, I want a kibitz. Thank you. I appreciate it. David Kasher is a rabbi. His brother Moshe Kasher is a comedian. Together, they'll debate Jews and comedy. This is Kasher versus Kasher. All right, welcome back, Kasher brothers. Thanks for joining me on the Kibitz. We're going to talk about Jews and comedy. Why are Jews funny? You know, are there funny or comedic bits of, say, the Talmud or the Torah? Like, is it has it been there since the beginning? I think I think Moshe is going to be expert um, this time. <laughs> no. Or is it you know, or is it sort of only emerged in the last you know one hundred or two hundred years as kind of a coping mes- mechanism for all the Michigas we've been mm-hmm, dealing with? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll answer that tradition part, but I, I, I'll soon hand it over to Moshe. Uh, but I, I think the Torah is not that funny. Not that funny a book. Like in general, like I think there's a philosopher Whitehead who said that the the absence of humor from the Bible is like just one of the most singular it's things. Sort of in absolutely, all of is that right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, what isn't there a part of the Noah story where they walk in and Noah's dick is out and they're like, "Oh, what's up? That's my dad's dick." <laughs> yeah. That's funny. That's innately funny. You mean like like horrifying funny? I mean, that's funny. Like, why would the story include that? It didn't even make sense. So it's weird. like, and then the animals were saved. And then this fool's dick was dangling out like, damn, Noah, put that dick away. All right. Well, <laughs> you, know? you know, I guess it depends, you know, everything's on the eye of the, you know, perverted beholder, but... Um, everything's on the dick of the perverted beholder. <laughs> wow, we're we're already in deep. Yeah. But uh, but but I do dick think deep. that the, the <laughs> okay, sorry, you know. But what are you going to do? I do think that the Talmud gets funny Although, in a little bit of a different way than we think of comedy today, it's just, it's so hair-splitting and detail-oriented that it kind of gets absurd. And, you know, like there's a case in the Talmud of someone, what happens if someone falls off a roof and falls into having sex with somebody? Do they, you know? Like, do they owe do they owe her damages? And like, like, well, how do you figure that case out? Like, there's something about oh, okay. the logic of the. So you Talmud. guys are over here, two of these guys. J- rolling their eyes at me for being so immature and juvenile when I was like Noah's dick was dangling out and then you're like oh but in the Talmud it does have a, <laughs> an interesting polemic about a man that falls from a roof into someone's vagina but so I'm point, saying but my point <laughs> maybe is maybe I'm a Talmud scholar that the difference between them is in the Talmud it feels a little absurd like the episodes of of kind of gruesome behavior in the Torah and the Bible tend to be very serious and very intense is there uh, nothing funny in the real Bible there are people who laugh. <laughs> there but are, then God like smites them, right? But there are not too many jokes in the in the Bible. But or just I mean absurd situations that are that are called you know that are sort of called yeah. out as absurd. Yeah, I mean, look, the, one of the first things that happens in the Bible is that a snake shows up and starts talking. I mean, that like, <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's that, funny. Like that, that's funny. But snake I, is like eat the eat this. It's a weird. It's kind of more psychedelic than funny. Yeah. Yeah, but no, I think that J- J- Jewish tradition gets funnier as it goes 
along, and it reaches its sort of apotheosis with Moshe. Like Moshe <laughs> like, <laughs> I would be laughing even more if I knew what apotheosis meant. <laughs> but uh, but no, but there's once you get to the Talmud, you have a recognition of humor. Like you have, you know, uh, rabbis who would open their their teaching with a joke to liven the mood. Or there's a kind of there's a famous story where there's these two rabbis walking in the marketplace and they bump into Elijah the prophet and they they say, hey, tell us who here in the marketplace um, has earned reward or like goes to the next world. And Elijah says those two, and they're like, well, who are they? And and Elijah says those are the badhanim, those are the comedians, and they made <laughs> they make people laugh, and so they make sad people laugh, and so they get. They they move on to the next world. That's what I'm talking about right there. Yeah, I get an instant pass to heaven. Yeah, you do. Yeah, just by just by talking about my ding dong. <laughs> I'm in, baby. What's yeah. up, God? <laughs> it's me, the comedian. I heard this random story from the Talmud. I'm trying to make a home here. It's literally like the story of our family. Like you know, I've, I was always like the pious one, the good one, did my duty, and then the old dick joke teller here yeah. is like you know the successful family member, but. Yeah, but you're that's successful that's, as well. No, but no, you're like a little bit famous. And stuff. I mean, hey, <laughs> keep talking. <laughs> but so, I mean, and that's, it's interesting, like your family, you know, you have a, a comedian and a rabbi in the family. In a way, they are sort of two sides of the same coin. Like, do you, do you a find... Gold coin, okay. right? <laughs> that we covet and eat, <laughs> in fact, and yeah. use for nutrients. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, do you find that... That was a Hanukkah joke, folks. No, I, yeah, I got it. <laughs> no, uh, that was not. That was a demonic uh, Jews eat the actual... They eat the they money. They eat gold. Right. Yeah, eat, eat gold. It's a nu- nu- nutrient. Uh, yeah. It's not a chocolate That's thing. what keeps us, uh, keeps us uh, going. Comedians are known for kind of trying to get at some higher truth. Obviously, rabbis seem to be getting, trying to, uh, you know help people understand a higher truth like do you think that that's something that's guided both of you or do you you don't give a shit I reject it. I reject the notion that the that the positioning of the ultimate positioning of the comedian is to get to the higher truth I understand I don't I don't mean to disparage your uh radio philosophy but I I think that that is I understand why people think that now because the most famous comedians of this particular generation are you know you like uh, Louis CK and and then you know of Carlin and Pryor and stuff but I think just as legitimate are people like you know Steve Martin and Zach Galifianakis who have very little to say but are just funny. So the real positioning of the comedian is to just be funny. I don't think it's for me. Yeah. I, I reject the notion. It's but to, I mean, to get but to there's the a truth. truthful. There's a even if the truth is just about the the making someone laugh like that like the, the nugget of truth of like we're humans and we need to laugh at something. Well, I do think I, I want to answer your question in a different way and say that I do think that there's something about. Jewish culture that is has always been sort of centered around thinking and thinking deeply and sort of intellectual life. And I think that there's something about comedy that whether it's absurdist or social commentary, that is it reflects a certain kind of incisive thinking, a kind of intelligence. And I think that overlap in the Jewish tradition maybe does do something to explain the preponderance of, of Jewish comedians. That it's like sort of emerges from from a deeply thinking culture you know i think that i mildly disagree i just disagree i'm here to disagree uh my real thought of why there's so many comedians that are jews is because we are a people that has been historically oppressed and that with oppression comes uh entertainers that's just you know gallows when you build the gallows in the world you live in is the gallows then the humor of the gallows comes 
it's sort of part and parcel. So there's a million black comedians, there's a million Jewish comedians, and I think it's not really difficult to see why there would be a need for a preponderance of Jewish and black comedians is because the de facto reality of Jews and black people over the course of history has been anything but funny, so you need... You need some. You need a clown to make to make you laugh to get you out of that kind of reality. That's that's my my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't disagree. With, uh, I would say that is the other reason. I just wanted to say that Jews are smarter. Smarter, and we're smarter. <laughs> yeah, no, I won't. I won't argue that. Even that, I even I can't disagree with. <laughs> um, were either of you guys, you know, as uh, growing up, were you inspired by any sort of of the? You know, vaudevillian, like the Jewish vaudevillians, or like the. Oh yeah, growing up, I was I was very <laughs> inspired by the Jewish vaudevillians. That was sort of the primary thing that Moshe was so obsessed with vaudeville as, as a young as a tyke. I will say this: uh, speaking of vaudevillians and Jews, I think that the uh, now I'm an adult, and I so now I go back and look at comedy and see how it's affected me without me knowing it. The Marx Brothers, I think, are very interesting and intriguing characters uh, in terms of Jewish comedy. Like you know, that's. We're talking a hundred, almost a hundred years ago, maybe a hundred years ago. The Marx Brothers. I don't know when exactly. They're like the twenties, kind of a thing. Thirties, kind of a thing. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, and they were Jews, strongly Jews. And the, one of the first things that uh, Groucho Marx did when he really got into true prominence is he started taking comedians to task for doing anti-Semitic jokes. Uh, and there's this great, uh-huh. there's this great. Um, it's, it, it, I read this book called The Comedians by Cliff Nesteroff. It's a very good book. But uh, the conversation that the guy was having, that Groucho Marx was having with this other famous comedian who got, got you know made his bones making fun of uh, Jews and there was somebody else, maybe Lithuanian, some very specific. And the guy's response was like, hey, I make fun of you know the English and I make fun of the Scots as well. And Groucho Marx said the difference is uh, you know the English and the Scots don't have to go back to a reality in which they're being oppressed. And we do. Uh, and so it's almost like it could be exactly the conversation we're having right now on Tumblr about trans people and why it's like we're, we've moved past making fun of trans people and why that's not it's not okay to, for trans to be the punchline uh, or whatever whether it's okay or not I'm not here to prognosticate about but it's interesting that the conversation basically had the same format and that it was about Jews and Judaism so in that way sort of we we started that too we're, sm- we're smart about that too mm-hmm. yeah. well and, that, and, I, and I think that that conversation still applies to Jews as well. I mean, there's still people telling anti-Semitic jokes. Well, here, I have an actual philosophy when it comes to anti-Semitism and it comes to Holocaust jokes. And I mean, obviously, Mel Brooks was the first guy to make fun of, you know, springtime for Hitler and like everybody, you know, clutched their pearls and said, how could you or whatever. And the point, that was the point, right? Uh, And and then his, I mean, I can't speak for Mel Brooks, but it seems pretty obvious. His point is you can laugh at absolutely anything. And the moment you laugh at something, you withdraw and remove the power from it. And so, for me, I love making jokes about Jewish stereotypes about, and I've been criticized for it, um, uh, you know, for like leaning into Jewish stereotypes in the midst of my of my jokes or in the midst of my stand-up act. And to me, it, the opposite is, you know, has always been true. I'm not empowering stereotypes. I'm, in fact, shining a light on how completely absurd it is. If I say with a straight face, like, oh yeah, no, we do, we do, in fact, kill unbaptized Christian babies to make matzah, because that's just what makes the most delicious matzah. I don't know if that's the most funny joke that's ever been made. That's not part of my stand up act okay don't take that as a <laughs> referendum on my stand up but it it leans directly into how completely absurd that is and the, i always say about like white supremacists <laughs> like if they weren't so dangerous they would be absolutely hilarious because their ideas are so completely absurd uh and so i think uh in that way 
you know, you know for sure that in the concentration camps there were people making jokes about the concentration camps. There's no possibility that there weren't, not only because they needed jokes, but because it was Jews. Right. Well, and that to me, I think, gets to the whole point of like trying to, uh, you know, bring forth some truth out of the comedy. Um, all right. Well, I think that's, uh, I think we've really solved this whole question of Jews. Have and we comedy. solved it? <laughs> but it really is, it is, it, uh, despite me just saying, oh, it's obvious when you're an oppressed people, you need entertainment, it is kind of stunning how many of the comedy luminaries of the last hundred years are Jews. It's yeah. kind of but, like well, overwhelming. I mean, it's interesting, though, that even like in the last, 20 to 30 years, one could argue the Jews haven't really been suffering too much. And yet right. comedy is still overwhelmingly dominated we're, by Jews. We're practicing for the next suffering. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're just getting ready, which seems to be coming uh, yeah. any minute now. Well, that's a cheery note to end yeah. on. Well, that leads us into our uh, next episode, actually, <laughs> about anti-Semitism. Um, all right. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks right. for uh, stopping by the kibitz. Thank, Thank you. you. My 95-year-old Nana is the best joke teller I know. Sure, she could use some new material, hey, but give her a break. She's 95. Hi, Dan. You're looking great. Oh, thanks. You're looking great, Nana. I like you. You're growing your gray out, which I think is... Uh... White. It's white. So, all right. Uh, I want to talk to you about uh, Jews and comedy. When you were growing up, were your parents funny? Did they tell jokes all the time? No, my dad did because he, you know, had a men's store and he'd hear jokes from customers and uh, he'd tell the joke he heard from one customer to another customer and he'd laugh his head off. He'd laugh so hard he would cry. <laughs> well, that sounds that sounds familiar. And so and so your dad was the kind of the joke teller in the family. Yeah. Right. Not not your mom as much. My mom said funny things like, uh, that's the way it is in a small town with a large population. She would say, um, do it to others before they do it to you. <laughs> she was a riot. And then she'd laugh her head off. Yeah. Do you think Jews are sort of naturally funny? Like I think so. I think comedy and, and tragedy, that's the Jew. <laughs> there was so much tragedy that they needed comedy to live comfortably within themselves. I have to tell you something funny. This happened to a friend of my brother's it was a grandfather, and his little granddaughter came up to him and said, Papa, I know what the F word means. And his grandfather said, Yes, Phoebe, what does it mean? She said, it means shit. <laughs> That's a true story. I think it's funny. This is a story of this guy goes into a bar, and he says to the bartender, who is that guy sitting over in the corner at that table by himself? He's got a green face and green hands and a green outfit and a green helmet. Who is he? He said, Oh, go talk to him. He's from Mars. He said, so he goes over and he said, uh, hi, I understand you're from Mars. And the guy said, I sure am. He said, and look at your hands. You've got a diamond ring on every finger. And the guy said, I sure have. He said, oh, does everybody on Mars have a diamond ring on every finger? And the guy says, not the goyim. <laughs>
That's funny. Oh, these two rabbis are walking down the street, and in front of them there are two Catholic nuns walking, and the rabbis are having a conversation, and one rabbi says to the other, did Marcus Pincus make your coat? He said, he sure did. He said, what did he charge you? He said, he charged me 100 bucks. So he said, my coat's like yours. And the guy says, what did Marcus Pincus charge you? He said, he charged me 100 bucks. But you know what? He only charged Rabbi Shmuel $50. So the other guy says, how do you like that? Marcus Pincus fucked us. And so the two nuns said, did you hear those rabbis? They can speak Latin. All right. Thanks, Nana. That was a tremendous, tremendous set from Nana here. I'm exhausted. Thank you, honey. Dan Patterson is a British television producer and writer and the creator of the long-running improv show Whose Line Is It Anyway, as well as the co-creator of Mock the Week. We spoke at his office in London. All right, Dan Patterson, thank you for stopping by the kibitz uh, with me today. Um, So, uh, you know, you uh, have been involved in comedy for a long time. You know, is there any sense of being Jewish is responsible in any way for you being involved in comedy? Did you? Yeah, I think a couple of ways. One is that um, I, you know, my family had, were were all interested in comedy and they had a very good sense of humor. And there's this organization, I don't know if you know, called Habonim, uh, which is, means the builders specifically. And my parents had met in that. And then I was in it when I was a kid. And the whole thing about that organization aside from the sort of politics and ideology and everything, was that everybody in it, there was a great uh, premium on comedy and being funny and having a good sense of humour. So my parents, I think, met and enjoyed each other's sense of humour. And then when I was in it, there was, as I, said, I was very encouraged to write shows and write things and do stuff through that. So I think that was one of the sources of, of my comedy, I guess. And the guy... Mark Levson, who I do all my shows with, I met him in Habonim when we were 14. And so we've all done our, you know, so, and you tend to hit it off with people when you share a sense of humor with them. But there was always laughter in our house. My parent, my dad loved American comedy and we lived in America when I was six. And I think I was exposed to American comedy at that point. So, you know, the Smothers Brothers and lots and lots of stuff that was going on at that time. And one of the things I've always thought about American comedy anyway is it's kind of Jewish comedy because I think the it was so dominated by Jewish writers for a long time that the way people speak, even in sitcoms which have nothing to do with anyone being Jewish in America, I think the way people talk is very Jewish. That's slightly aggressive kind of, who am I, your brother, kind of thing. <laughs> I, I, think that's, I think that's very Jewish. So yeah. I, the whole American idiom was there. And I think actually... Being there when I was six really rubbed off on me in in that regard because I've I've always felt very at home in American comedy. Right, and so tell, like for our listeners who don't know what Habanim is, what what exactly is it? Is well, it was a sort camp? of it was a summer camp, but it was a bit more than a summer camp. I mean, the idea was that people were going to go and live in Israel and build up kibbutzim on our kibbutz here, uh, and doing that sort of um, so it was pretty left wing, idealistic 
Um, and, you know, it's very much trying to get back at that. Uh, certainly there was a string in it of trying to get back to agriculture and actually doing stuff with your hands and, and not being the just the people of the book, not being the pale-skinned people at Yeshiva, <laughs> right. but actually going there and building up the land. And, and as I said, it was, it was full of great people. It was full of very idealistic people, people with a lot of energy, people, as I said, with a great sense of humour, creative people. And because you were, I was in it as a kid, and then you became a youth leader yourself, and you were always trying to come up with creative, interesting, amusing ways to put across uh, educational uh, programs. So it it did spark creativity within people. Hmm. And the big thing for me, actually, was that I went to an all-boys school, and the way to meet girls was through Habonim, because all of a sudden, <laughs> that's where you met girls. So it was, motivation. It, of course, yeah. it, was, it was summer camp and winter camp, but it was also weekly things going on. Right. You said it sort of uh, it wasn't a huge Jewish community in Oxford. There and, wasn't yeah. in Oxford. No. And so did you find, I mean, did you find growing up here that it was, was it kind of something that you kept quiet or was it something that, you know, you didn't not, Well, not to? really. I mean, there was a weird thing, which was when I was growing up, in my family, being Jewish was a very positive thing. There's no doubt about it. I know it was very good on the festivals. And because my father, that was his sort of subject. Uh, we were always, you know, he would always go into that. So he did great Seder nights at Passover, uh-huh. Pesach, you know. I mean, that was great. But I didn't hugely love the community, not because there was anything wrong with the community, but I didn't have friends in it particularly. And um, it was only when I went to Habonim that I suddenly went, God, this is great. I'm doing something that all of uh, none of my non-Jewish friends are doing. I've got this amazing thing I'm going to, and we meet up and... We do shows and we do uh, programs and we do camps, you know, taking a group to Holland when I'm 18. You know, it's fantastic. And all my non-Jewish friends don't have that. So it suddenly gave me a real thread into something positive about being Jewish. And and it, I owe it a lot because, it, you know, that was what turned it around for me. Instead of, you know, I didn't, I never liked going to Hebrew classes. I don't know if you went to Hebrew classes. Yeah, I was but, not a fan. <laughs> but I, I wasn't a fan. And my father was smart enough, actually, when I really moaned about it to say, all right, look, if you don't want to go, don't go, because he didn't want me to be put off. And when I was 18, I went for a year and learned more in about the first week than I'd learned in an entire, uh, you know, six years of going. Wow. So, you know, so it was, um, but it was, it, so it, it was very positive once I think I joined Hab on him until that point. I think I was a bit ambivalent yeah. about it. I certainly, I, I didn't then, and I don't now particularly love going to synagogue. And I I wouldn't say I was massively observant, although, you know, we, I, I do, I've got a very strong Jewish identity. Yeah. But I actually, for me, it's more about cultural and historical identity rather than specifically a religious identity. Although, you know, I, I keep sort of kosher, that slightly <laughs> weird halfway house thing. Yeah. And we do the festivals and, you know, it's very family oriented. Yeah. So wh- how did you then translate, you know, what you were doing then at Havanim sort of as a kid into, into a career? Well, what? I don't think necessarily I did in a direct way. Uh, what happened was, though, that I both through that and also my father took me along to this thing called the Cambridge Footlights Review, which was traveling around the country. And I saw it in Oxford. So that's a... Uh, a show that they do every year in Cambridge. And it was very great. You know, that's where Peter Cook came from and John Cleese and uh, a lot of the people who went into comedy subsequently. And I went along to see this and thought, that when I was about 13, I thought, wow, that's what I want to do. And I always loved doing comedy things and I loved listening to comedy. You know, there are a lot of radio stuff like The Goons and I love Monty Python and not the nine o'clock news. And I was always one of the people in my year and have on him that wrote the shows. Mm-hmm. And then I went to America 
uh, I, well, I did history at university here, and then I was lucky enough to get a scholarship to America. I went to Ann Arbor. And I found when I got to Ann Arbor, I looked in the booklet, and I realised I was, I was actually got a scholarship to do history. But I suddenly realised you could do an MA in TV and film. And I went, wow, that, that's what I want to do. <laughs> I, did, I never looked back after that, because, first of all, although it was extremely hard work, it didn't feel like work. I mean, I just went, this is what I do, I want to do. This is what I really, this is what turns me on. And then I didn't want to leave America because I was having such a wonderful time there. So I then did three years at Northwestern University. But during that time, I auditioned for a show called The Meow Show. And The Meow Show was a student improv show. And I'd never seen improv before. I was always somebody who did reviews at university here mm-hmm. in England, but I, I'd never done improv. And I auditioned thinking, well, I'm bound to get in because I do. I'm a funny guy. I'm hilarious. I, I do all this <laughs> stuff in England. And I nearly got in, to be fair. I, there were 10 people they took or eight people, and I was ninth. Wow. So I and I, but I was always already a graduate, and they were all undergraduates. So I can see I, I didn't quite fit in. I also did a lot of stuff on the outside because, and I was English. So I think there was a lot of stuff going against me in terms of being cast. Also, lack of talent. I don't, I don't want to, you know, uh, sweep that under the carpet. <laughs> but I um I didn't do it. But a couple of years later, a wonderful woman there called Liz Kruger was was producing it, the show two years later, and I sort of met her. Just we were schmoozing in the, you know, the canteen and stuff. And she said, did I want to direct it? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'd love to do that. And I directed this improv show. And all of a sudden I was just in seventh heaven. I absolutely loved doing that. We had a very talented group of people. And during that period, I came back to England to um, revise for these terrible PhD exams you have to do, which were three all-day exams. I mean, just the thought of it even now gets me sweaty. I got back, and a friend of mine who was actually a BBC uh, journalist, uh, you know, correspondent called Jeremy Bowen, said to me, oh, have you seen in The Guardian there's a um, an ad for a producer in radio? And I went, oh, my God. But, you know, I would never have thought of doing that, but I applied. And to my amazement, I kept getting through each round. And I got to the last three and there were two places, and they were both taken by people who were already in the department. But they did say to me, if anything comes up during the year, we'll let you know. I mean, I was just stunned that I got this far, but great. And I thought, yeah, yeah, sure, you know. And then about, I went back to America, did these exams, and I was still, you know, studying and working. All of a sudden, I got a call to say, actually, one of the producers who was in our department has died. <laughs> uh, oh there's a, a vacancy. <laughs> And would you be interested? So yeah. I, you know, came back like a guided missile, right. interviewed, and, and got you were me. out of the country. It couldn't have been you that. Uh, it, was no, it was, uh, well, I've got. I've still got my bus. <laughs> got a good again. alibi. Yeah. Okay, okay. Meanwhile, I'd arranged to bring this improv troupe to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. So I sort of joined the BBC, and almost at the same time, I was doing this improv group in Edinburgh. Were great, and then I, I became a producer. And one of the first things I pitched to the BBC Light Entertainment Department was an improv show, which I got a pilot for, and that became Whose Night Is It Anyway? Wow. Wait, I'm just curious what you, have you, you know, there's been a lot of reports of, of a rise in anti-Semitism in the UK and, and across Europe. Anything you've been conscious of at all, or is it something well, you've read about I, and seen I think, I think there is. I, I genuinely do think there is. I mean, you can see it in what's going on with Jeremy Corbyn at the moment and stuff like that, which distresses me. But also, I, I occasionally go to clubs, and I occasionally see people do a, a, a joke, which is some vaguely anti-Semitic trope, and nobody goes... <gasps> You, know, you don't even see an intake of breath. People just laugh at it. And I always think that if it was an equivalent joke in some racial form, racist form, I think 
Uh, yeah. All right. My recorder cut off in the end of his interview. It was very upsetting. But Dan was kind enough to let me come back and pick up the conversation about the rise of anti-Semitism in the UK, which was a pretty great conversation. And that will be coming up on our next episode. Andrea Rosen is a comedian and actress known for her work on Stella, The Ten, and Episodes, a really great show on Showtime, and lots of other hilarious stuff. We spoke at the Earwolf Studios in Los Angeles. Let's start kibitzing. What do you say? Let's kibitz. All right, so I saw you in the elevator, or, you know, on the way up here, and you're like, I'm not that Jewish. Right. Uh, yeah, so that's okay. So, like, how, what, like, what, is there a scale, like, how Jewy you are, or, like, I you know? feel Jewish in my heart. Okay, that's, that's something. Right, and I look Jewish. Your name sounds very Jewish? And my name is Jewish. Yeah. Um, and my dad is Jewish. Okay. My mom looks Jewish, but she is not Jewish. And she and doesn't like my dad. They divorced many, many years ago, but she's still, that fire is still burning very brightly for her, even though it's been almost 40 years. Um, and, uh, and so because of that, she's like slightly an anti-Semite. <laughs> but it doesn't have to do that, with not liking that. Judaism. Yeah. It has right. to do with it's not him. liking my dad. Yeah, I can see that um, so basically everything associated with my father, my mom hates. And so as a result, she's not really on board for anything Jewish. Okay. I am. Like when I'm invited to somebody's Passover, I'm so excited. I love the food, except I don't love Kugel that much. That's the only thing I don't like. You just like. haven't had a good Google. Maybe that's true. Yeah. But brisket, I love. Um, and I, I love Jewish people. Like, that. those are my people. I feel yeah. comfortable talking well, I mean, to you're, and, and you're, hanging out. You're a comedian. Yeah. Seems like there are a lot of Jews in comedy. Yeah, you don't meet many, like, uptight Catholic comedians. No. I don't, at least. Yeah. You know, I don't think you have to be, you know, obviously you don't have to be, like, Jewish to be, I mean, funny. You know what I'm saying. Yeah. You don't have to be... Jewish and funny. Jewish right. doesn't equal funny. But it doesn't but it doesn't hurt. Doesn't hurt. Doesn't it hurt. doesn't hurt. Yeah. So I have a question. Are the Jews the Jews are still waiting for the Messiah to come? Is that like still on the table? I guess. Uh you know, I I'm I'm probably about as Jewy as you are. Like I this part of the reason I do this podcast is because I don't know the answers to a lot of these questions. Right. So I'm learning. But I think, yeah. I mean I think the hardcore Jews that are very religious are still waiting for the Messiah. Mm -hmm. But, you know, listeners write in or tweet us and tell me I'm wrong here. But, uh, or Messiah, if you're listening, right. Send us a tweet uh, already. Or just show up. Or just do it. I mean, now, now seems like a good time. And so what's going to happen when the Messiah comes? Do you know the answer to that? I, d I don't know the answer like to paradise? that. Like paradise? I yeah. Like challah bread for days. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, sales, a lot of sales. Oh, good. Yeah, everything's going to be, the prices will be slashed. Right. Um, and uh, there'll be a lot of like free buffet. Right. Uh, you know, bagels for everybody. So that is a thing that people say like Jews are cheap, right? It's like a, that is a thing. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I have to say, I am, I am cheap. So that's, that's one. So we know you're Jewish because A, you're into comedy and you're cheap. Yeah. I actually feel like sometimes I sh I wish I had religion in my life because I have had moments of like, this life is overwhelming. It would be so much easier to like hang have some my answers. hat on, yeah. on like, I don't know, something more concrete than yeah. just getting through the day. 
I think that's why religion exists, probably. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think. But the idea of pursuing it in a real way feels too overwhelming. And yeah. I'm not that motivated to do it because I'm still really tired because my kids wake up at 530 <laughs> sure. in the morning and like I'm trying to watch Lady Dynamite and all yeah. these other shows and yeah. I can't squeeze it in. Plus, who's, who's got the time? Right. We are not really raising our kids with any particular religion, you know, but there was like this Jewish preschool we toured and I was interested in it. But then um, I I was like, I don't know that I want um, my kids to, like, be religious at all at this point because yeah. it felt like forcing something down their throat. I, I don't know. Like, I'm not ready to light candles at my house every Friday night for, um, for what's it called? <laughs> for what's it called? <laughs> I think that's uh, Shabbat. Yeah, for that Shabbat. That one, that answer I know. So, so, like, they did at the preschool, they did Shabbat every Friday and people, like, brought in candles and stuff. And I thought, like, that's, I do like that. Part of me liked it, but part of me also didn't want him to learn that at such an early age because, I don't know, we don't do it in our house. Not that I'm opposed to it. I love yeah. having dinner together and we have it all the fucking time. Yeah. But and they are Jewy. I feel their Jewiness as yeah. well. And I can't really describe how, but I think that they, I feel like there's being sort of, um, outspoken to me feels Jewy and like saying what's true feels Jewish to me. Mm -hmm. And they're very good at that. And not being ashamed feels very Jewish to me. I don't know huh. if any of this I is true. I feel ashamed true. all the time. You do? <laughs> but like they're not ashamed of their bodies. Oh, or right. like, okay. You know, like my son had like a spoon. He was trying to stick a spoon up his butt the other day. Not that that's, <laughs> that's so very Jewish. Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> that is a well-known, I think that's in the Talmud actually. <laughs> It was uh, Aaron. I mean, I, I quickly was like, can you please take the spoon out of your butt? But part of me was happy that he was just kind of going for it. But he was it. doing it as a gag, right? He was doing it as a gag, yes. Right. And I, I appreciate the frankness of it. Yeah. And for me, I associate frankness and honesty with um, being culturally Jewish. Huh, that's Does interesting. That make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, and that's what a lot of stand-up is about, is yeah. like... Getting up on stage and being frank and honest and like, yeah. you know, telling the truth about whatever shit you're going through. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting that that, yeah, that seems like, Jewish like, to you. I feel like it's so important to be truthful and to yeah. say what's true, yeah. you know, 90% of the time, I'll say. Sure. But, um, and so I, I feel like that's something that like, for example, my mom, who is not Jewish at all, she's not a truth teller in the same way. And I find it um, so much easier to communicate with people when they do, when they are just like honest and frank about yeah. stuff. Interesting. And so do you feel like your dad then, you know, can you look back and see him more as an influence in, in terms of your comedy of like how you... I mean, I could always say whatever I wanted in front of my dad. Like yeah. I could always curse in front of him. I could tell him anything. I could share anything with him. And he, he, he's struck me, always struck me as very non-judgmental. And so in that way, um, yes, I have like a lot of honest and funny communication with my dad as a result of it. Yeah. Whereas like, <laughs> we're really getting into it <laughs> as, as opposed to my mom, who it's a little like there are minefields and you can't really say anything, you know, everything because yeah. she'll be offended easily. And my dad really is not offended easily at all. And he's really fun to like say anything in front of. And yeah. so in that way, yes, I'm funny with my dad. I'm not funny with my mom. Hmm, interesting. Well, there you go. Yeah. 
He's Jewish. She's not. There done. you go. <laughs> That's the difference. <laughs> and we're done. All right. Well, thanks, Andrea. And uh, thanks for stopping by the kibitz. Thank you for having me. And hey, I would be remiss not to include a bit of my own Jewy stand-up. Yes, I tried stand-up briefly. It was fun, but I was pretty terrible. So now I host a podcast. Please attempt to enjoy. What was I going to say? I was going to say, my balls. Uh, <laughs> um, my balls are, I feel like they're just, they're not what they used to be. You know, I'm 40 now, and my balls are not what they used to be. Like, when I was younger, my balls were like these perky, rugged Israeli soldiers, you know? Just sitting crouched in a foxhole, with big Jew froze out to here. <laughs> My friend, I, I hope we see some action soon. <laughs> yes. Tonight we invade Pakistan. <laughs> fans of, fans of that, people from Pakistan. <laughs> um, but now, now as I've gotten older, I feel like my balls have turned into those two old guys from the Muppets. <laughs> All right, that is it for this episode of The Kibitz. If you liked it, hey, please rate us and review us on iTunes. It'll take you a second, and it actually really helps us out. Tell your friends, post it on Facebook, tweet it, periscope it, listen while you're distracted playing Pokemon Go, whatever the hell that is. And if you dig it or you didn't, send me feedback at kibitzpod at gmail.com or tweet us at kibitzpod. And please give us a like on Facebook. And you can follow me on Twitter at Dan Crane here. I'd like to thank our guests, David Wayne, the Casher Brothers, Dan Patterson, Andrea Rosen, and of course, my Nana. Check out Wet Hot American Summer, first day of camp on Netflix now. Moshe Casher will be performing live in Amsterdam, July 27th, and in New York at Caroline's, August 2nd. Go to MoshaKasher.com for more. And check out Rabbi David Kasher's brilliant podcast at Parshanut.com. Also, you can watch Andrea Rosen on episodes on Showtime. And you can now watch every episode of Whose Line Is It Anyway on the CW.com. This episode was produced and edited by me, Dan Crane, with help from Adam Sachs, Sarah DeLeo, and David Jargowski. Additional engineering was by Brett Morris. Special thanks to David Katznelson, Francine Hermelin, Earwolf, and as always, Reboot. Music was made by me, my current band, Ray and Ramora, and my old band, Nunam Plu. And this podcast is sponsored by the Emanuel J. Friedman Philanthropies. We thank them for their continued support. And as my great-grandmother used to say, That's the way it is in a small town with a large population. Thanks for listening to The Kibitz. The Kibitz.